Thank you for downloading this podcast from Lafayette Community Church. We hope this message inspires you to know and live the life you were designed for, because we exist to help people just like you discover life in Christ. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? Can you understand me? Sort of. I've got a couple different mask situations up here. And um, we tested it earlier this morning with my microphone in a different setup. But uh, actually, I heard an S there. I almost heard an, I almost heard an S. So I'm going to do a couple little announcement-y kinds of things here. And if Chuck gives me the wave down, I'm going to switch to a slightly lighter mask just in case. But for those of you who weren't on our uh, chat situation, I sent out an email kind of update thing this week or a blog post letting you know that my wife had COVID last week. And so uh, she tested positive on Tuesday and was like totally sick all week long. And we isolated ourselves from each other, which was annoying. Um, and, uh, but she's beginning to feel a little bit better now, and I tested negative this morning, and so we're just doing uh, abundance of caution. I thought about, like, pre-recording a video, but then there's, like, this question of what is more personable. Is it to be in person, but doing some sort of mask thing, or is it to be on the screen without, I don't even know. So, um, it's, it's like two and a half years into this whole thing, and we still don't have any real, real um, conclusions on the relational dynamics of it all. Chuck, what do you think? Is it manageable? <laughs> you love it when your sound guy does this. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see how that works. Hopefully, I can uh, continue to breathe well enough, but uh, we'll just get through this. Um, we've got note sheets in the back, so if you want to grab one of these note sheets, mine have all the answers filled in already, but uh, we've got them in the back next to our paper Bibles, and then if you want to use our app, just download Lafayette Community Church from any of the app stores, and you can follow us that way. If you click on the picture that's on the top of the app, then it'll take you into our live note system. And then you can follow along with us digitally. We'll be on the same digital page. And you need to have a Bible open because we're going to be going through first, excuse me, second Samuel chapter two, three, and four today. And I thought to myself, man, if I'm going to be doing the mask thing, I should really plan a 20 minute message so we all get out of here sooner, you know? But uh, then I looked at the passage and I'm just like, I can't do that because chapter two and three and four all work together. They even work with five, but I had to cut something out. So anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to cover those three chapters, but you're going to have to follow along in your own text because um, I'm not going to read the entire thing. And so if you get bored with what I'm saying, it's helpful to have the Bible in front of you and you can distract yourself with the actual word of God, which is good. Um, but with all those things said, let's jump into it and let's study God's word together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lead us in to your word. We pray that you would help us to understand what you are saying into our hearts. We pray that you would help us to see your will for our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would also open up our eyes to what it means for us in this world what it means for us to be people who serve you well in this world, what it means for us to be people who follow you in this world, what it means for us to be people who, when we are in charge, we use that power well, and when we're not, 
we are appropriately willing to let other people have that power. Lord, I pray that you would just be at work in our hearts today. Father, would you guard the words that I speak and the thoughts in all of our hearts, and would you shape everything that happens here today to bring you honor and glory. Lord, we love you. We seek for your will to be done in this world and in our lives, and we give you this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, here we go. We're going to jump right on into it. I want to give you right at the very beginning the idea that we're going to be covering. So for the past couple of months, few months, we've been going through the book of First and Second Samuel. It was originally one book. They split it into two. And so last week we started the second volume, started Second Samuel. And we learned what David is like once he's found out that Saul is dead. Saul is the previous king. David is the new king. King. And for the past, I don't know, decade or so, Saul has been chasing after David, trying to kill David. And David, now that Saul is dead, is the king. And of course, the question is, what is David going to be like when Saul is no longer around? And we found an interesting thing last week. And it was that as soon as David heard that Saul was dead, David cried about it. David heard his enemy was gone, and David got upset. David was sad. You see, the lesson we learned last week is that David entered into his new kingdom without a sense that the previous kingdom was his enemy, but a sense that the previous king was his brother. And he mourned the fact that that other guy was gone. And that sets us up for a really interesting kind of kingdom. Because I don't know if you're like me, but if you, if you were raised in Sunday school, you got this picture of David as being this mighty warrior. You know, he took down Goliath. And then you, you get this picture of him just, just going through all these battles and, and killing all these people. And to be sure, David has been violent. But the picture of a warrior we have in our mind, you know, the John Wayne Lone Ranger type, the picture of a, of a person who's just ready at any moment to deal out justice, to kill whoever they need to kill, the, the diehard sort of guy. The picture we have in our mind of David is not all that accurate. Because the fundamental characteristic we need to know about David is something that God himself said about David. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we read these words we've seen almost every single Sunday, where Samuel says to Saul, the king, the previous king, that the, his kingdom is going to be taken away from him. It says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. And it's because Saul had not obeyed God's command. But the key line in there is after. Interestingly enough, today in chapter 2, that word after shows up like 20 times. Just that one word. It gets translated as different things. It gets translated as pursuit. It gets translated as back, you know, like the back end of a spear uh, is actually the after part of the spear. And so that same Hebrew word gets translated in all those different ways. And what's fascinating is that God looks at David and says that the one thing that he wants people to know about David is that David is a person who is after God, after God's own heart. And for the past few months, we've been talking about the difference, what that means. It means a person who takes after God and a person who is after God, a person who's pursuing God, but a person who also is trying to be like God. 
And today we're going to see David, in some respects, living up to that idea. In some respects, living up to the idea that he is a person who's taking after God. But we're also going to see weakness in David. And it's a weakness we can't really figure out. Because it's a weakness where he allows other people to do all of the dirty work for him instead of him doing dirty work. But it's also a weakness in something else. And so today, I'm just going to give you the over, overarching outline for these next three chapters, chapter 2, 3, and 4. And when David begins his kingdom, when David gets into power, when he starts being the king, we learn these things. Number one, he seeks God's guidance. This is unlike Saul. Saul never sought God's guidance. This is unlike any of the previous leaders in the nation of Israel. Very few of the leaders in in Israel's history were people who sought God first. But David, as soon as he becomes king, he's seeking God and his guidance. Number two, when David becomes king, he shows a preference for peace. Now, this is a little weird. You're going to see this in just a moment. But in chapter 2, a civil war starts between the people who were faithful to the previous king, Saul, and the people who are now faithful to David. And in every one of those battles, never once is it mentioned that David was in them. In not one of the civil war battles where David is becoming king do we find David actually fighting. And so, on the one hand, we get the sense that maybe David is going soft, maybe David is, is going weak, but at the very least, he's, it's clear in this, in this set of chapters that David has a preference for peace. Thirdly, when David becomes king, he gives honor to his opponents. This is fascinating. There's a man who betrays him, and David gives him an honorable burial. In fact, David throws the funeral for this guy. It's a pretty remarkable story. And then the fourth thing is that when David becomes the king, he actually displays vulnerability. Again, this is one of those things where you wonder, does David, is he going soft or is he smart? And his vulnerability is something that we're going to see in just a little bit that kind of sounds like he's whining or complaining, but maybe it's that he's being vulnerable. And honestly, I can't tell the difference because I'm reading unemotional text out of a page. And so it's hard for me even to tell the difference between whether he's being vulnerable in a complaining way or vulnerable in an honest way. And then finally, when David becomes king, he exploits women. Now, I told you not everything was good about this guy, right? Here is the interesting thing about this character, David. Even though he gets this picture in the Bible of a person who's after God's heart, the Bible is never telling us that David is perfect. In fact, we get a lot of stories of David's flaws. Today, the story that we get is difficult for us because of a number of things. Number one, David is not present in most of the story, so that's difficult. He's the only character in the story that we have a judgment about. God tells us that David is a man after his own heart. All the other people we don't have any judgment about, so we can't really tell if they're doing things that are good or bad because there's no evaluation in this passage. It's just a whole bunch of news reports of what's going on without any sort of commentary on whether they did the right thing or the wrong thing. And since David isn't part of most of the story, it's hard for us to understand what point is being made. 
the other thing that's weird is that the things we expect to be true about a king who's following after God, some of them we see, some of them we don't. And we also see this one thing that is just so disturbing to me. And you will see it today too. But the writer of these first chapters doesn't give us any evaluation. It's how David relates to women. And the writer of these chapters doesn't give any evaluation. He just tells us what happens. Okay? Now, if you're familiar with the story of David, you know that his biggest flaw in his entire kingdom involved another woman. But that's coming up later. Today, we just get the foreshadowing of it. So this is what we're going to do. Some of it I'm going to read to you, and some of it I'm just going to narrate to you so that we can race through these three chapters pretty quickly. But we're going to start right at the beginning with verses 1 through 7. It says this in chapter 2, 2 Samuel chapter 2. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men with, who were with him, each with his own family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness too, and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you've done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Now, just to remind you of the story, okay? So Saul was in battle and was wounded, and then Saul killed himself so the enemy couldn't come and torture him. But after Saul is dead, the enemy does show up, and they dismember him, and they display him as a trophy for the people in their own area. And the men of a town named Jabesh-Gilead go and rescue Saul's body, bring it back, and give it a proper burial. And so now David is honoring those guys. But so far in these first seven verses, we have seen all of the things that I just mentioned. You see, immediately after David has become the king, he's there in Ziklag, the first thing he does is he seeks God. God, should I go back to the towns of Judah? Because Ziklag is one of the Philistine towns. And so now David is like, should I go back into the towns of Judah? And God says, yes, go back. David says, where? God says, Hebron. So David obeys. Immediately, we get a good start. David is listening to God. He's paying attention to God. He's fine in Ziklag. All the people are fine in Ziklag, right? But he chooses to go ahead and pack up and move because God tells him to. And he's okay with that. And then you see all the other things that are going on here. You see David as a man of peace. He's making peace with these guys who buried his, the former king. In fact, he's honoring them even though from certain perspectives they'd be his opponents. They seem to be faithful to Saul, but David is like, no, I'm going to honor you. But did you notice he has two wives? That's just an important thing to remember. Now, other people in the Bible have two wives, and uh, 
It's never judged so much, although it is frowned upon, depending on which passages you're reading at which particular time. It's never encouraged in the Bible. It's always something that sort of just happens, and the Bible tells us it happened. And this is the case here, too. David has two wives. I'd love to get into the story of how he got these two specific wives, because they're interesting stories. But I I do need to remind you of something. There was another wife, right? I I just read these two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, right? If any of you are really familiar with the story of David, you know there's a different woman in there too. The first woman he married, do you remember? Her name was Michal. She was Saul's daughter. She was given to David as a trophy because he defeated Goliath. But then Saul said to David, no, I actually don't want to give you my daughter. You're going to have to do something else for me. You're going to have to kill a whole bunch of Philistines. And so David does, and then he comes back and proves that he's killed these other Philistines, which is kind of gross. We'll get to that later. And then he gets Michael, Michal, and he, he gets to marry her. But she's not mentioned here, right? Well, that's because in the previous volume... We read that Saul, after David ran away, Saul took Michal and gave her to another guy. And so Michal has been married to this other guy for like a decade, as long as David's been out running around. But you should at least know that the two wives that are named here doesn't include the other one before them. And we begin to get a hint of David and his relationship with women. But I'm getting off track a little bit. We need to focus on the story and race our way through it because the way the story develops, I'm just going to narrate it for you a little bit, but first let's read the next two verses because they set it up. Verse 8, Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Okay, so let me explain this. Saul had a commander, his name was Abner. Abner took Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and made him king. Question Why is Ishbosheth, a guy who's 40 years old, we learn by reading the rest of the chapter, why is Ishbosheth still alive? Because Saul was in battle. Remember? Saul was in battle with his sons, remember? Saul and his sons were killed in battle, remember? Saul is fighting, all his sons are dead, he's by himself, and that's when he kills himself. If Ishbosheth is a son of Saul, and Ishbosheth is 40 years old, why was Ishbosheth not fighting next to his dad in battle? It's just one of those parts of the story that raises a question, like, like, who is this guy? Well, frankly, let's be honest. He's a guy who, for whatever reason, is not qualified for battle, and for whatever reason, doesn't even try to become king himself. It's Abner, the commander, who sets Ishbosheth up as the king over the northern tribes of Israel. In other words, Abner is the one who's really trying to gain power here. Abner is using Ishbosheth as a kind of a puppet king so that Abner can gain power. And that's exactly what we see. Because in the rest of the story, Ishbosheth doesn't show up at all. Like there are two verses that mention him after this, just a few of them. 
Ishbosheth doesn't show up involved in all, but Abner does. In fact, this is how the story goes. Abner gets an army together, and they come down to where David and his men are. So Judah is the big tribe in the south, and then all the other tribes are up in the north. And that's the way the nation of Israel works. And so all the tribes in the north are collectively called Israel, just because there's more than one tribe, and Judah is always called Judah when it's just by itself. So Abner gets all of the people of Israel to form an army, primarily Benjamin, though, this one tribe, and he brings them down to where David is in Hebron in Judah, and they're going to fight because Abner doesn't want David to be in charge. And so they go out, but it's not David who goes out. It's a guy named Joab who goes out. So Abner and Joab meet, and they each have their armies. Joab is with David. Abner is with Ishbosheth. They meet, and this is what they do. They say, here's what we do. Let's just send 12 of our men out to fight each other, and let's see which side wins. Well, what happens is each side sends 12 guys out, one after the other, and each duet kills each other. And so 24 guys are evenly matched, and they all kill each other. So now you've got 24 dead guys. Neither side is ahead. And so they start fighting. They start a big battle. But Abner, who is more interested in power than he is in actual victory, runs away. So he takes off. Joab's army is winning handily. They kill 360 of these other guys. These guys only kill 19 of them. Joab is winning handily. Abner runs off. Joab's younger brother, or older brother, I actually don't know, Asahel, starts chasing after Abner. And they're having this foot race. You should read your Bible. I'm telling you this is interesting. They're having this foot race. And as they're running, Abner is like, ah, is that Asahel back there? And Asahel is like, you betcha it is. And then Abner's like, leave me alone. And Asahel says, no, I'm going to get you. And then Abner's like, no, I don't want to have to kill you. How will I ever look at Joab in the face again? Like they're enemies. I don't know what that situation is all about. But anyway, so they're running. And finally, this is what happens. Abner is in the front. This other guy is chasing after him. They're both apparently crazy fast. And somehow, Abner takes his spear and runs the back end of the spear right through the belly of Asahel, and it comes out the backside, and the dude dies. Like, he doesn't even stab him with the sharp end. It's the, it's the blunt end. In fact, the text calls it the butt end, but it's the word after that we've seen before. But I'm just like, what is happening in this story? So anyway, now Joab's brother is dead, and he's mad at Abner, and so Joab starts chasing after Abner, and finally Abner's like, listen, we're all Israelites, can't we just live in peace? And Joab says, okay, get out of here, and we'll go home. And so they leave. Weird. Now we get to chapter 3. And chapter 3, we find this in verse 1. Take a look at it. It says, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. But in that whole story I told you, what was David doing? No idea. We have no idea. 
There's Abner chasing, being chased by Asahel. There's Joab chasing Abner. Everybody's chasing each other. There's all this thing going on. David's nowhere to be seen. Ishbosheth is nowhere to be seen. The two kings are nowhere to be seen. And now we hear that David is growing stronger and stronger during this time of war. And Saul's house is growing weaker and weaker during this time of war. Do you want to know how David's house is growing stronger? Literally, he's having more babies. Look at the next few verses. It says this, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Abnon, the son of Hinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephathiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Um, how many wives was that? Were, were you counting? There's six. And it still doesn't mention Michal, right? There's six women now. Here are these other guys. They're out fighting a battle, and here's David back in Hebron just acquiring ladies. We know that David was in Hebron for seven years. That's how long he was the, the king in Hebron. And in those seven years, he has six boys with six different women. I just kind of wonder, you know, I know that's physically possible, but I just kind of wonder, are there more women that gave him daughters? You know? I, I just kind of wonder, how many women has he acquired while he has been there? Well, I, I, I don't... I don't know, but I got to tell you the rest of the story because there's more weird stuff that happens. So, in the next part of the story, Abner goes to Ishbosheth one day, and Ishbosheth says, Why'd you sleep with my father's concubine? Which is a dumb question, weird question, confusing question. And Abner is like, How dare you accuse me of doing something so terrible with that woman? He's just so upset that he would be accused. The text doesn't tell us if Abner ever did. We have no idea of the backstory of this thing. All we know is Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with his dad's woman. And Abner is like, How dare you? And this is what happens Abner says, Fine then, I'm going after David. I'm going to follow David. And I'm going to get all of Israel to follow David too. Ishbosheth. I'm done with you. And so he does. Abner writes a letter to David. He says, David, I'm turning. I want to come over to you. I want to bring all Israel over to you. We're just going to make you king over the entire nation. We're done with Ishbosheth. And David is like, fine. I will let you come and talk to me if you bring me Michal, my wife. And it's like, David, what? Here it is, verse 12. 3.12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine 
foreskins. Yes, that's right. That's how he proved that he had killed 100 Philistines uh, to Saul back in 1 Samuel. Um, you should read your Bible. It's weird. But then this is what happens. Ishbosheth actually gives those orders and had her taken away from her husband and the text knows the name of the husband. His name is Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back. The, the picture of this story just, I find so heart-wrenching. David's got six women, possibly more. And he's like, oh, but I want that other one that I used to have a long time ago. I want her back. So get me her back. And so they do. And then you see her actual husband who actually loves her following the caravan the whole way, weeping and crying that his wife has been stolen from him by all these powerful people. Until finally Abner says, go home, dude. And he goes home. I find that whole situation heartbreaking that so many people with so much power would be so cruel. I'll come back to that in a little bit because you need to hear more of this story. What happens next is fascinating. Abner shows up in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, Abner then tells David, I'm going to get all Israel to come over to your side. And David's like, sounds great. And so it says David sent Abner away in peace. Joab comes back into town, into Hebron. And Joab says, wait a minute, Abner was here? The dude who killed my brother is here? Where'd he go? And the message is that David sent him away in peace. And so then Joab goes and he sends messengers who find Abner because Abner had gone away in peace. And then he brings Abner back to Hebron. And when Abner comes back to Hebron, Joab goes up to Abner and says, I got a secret for you. And Abner says, what? And Joab says, and stabs him in the belly. And so Abner dies. Joab kills him because Abner had killed his brother. Stab in the belly. Same kind of situation. Revenge is what that's all about. But three times the text emphasized that David had sent him away in peace. But Joab is the one who took revenge. Here, check this out in verse 26. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately. And there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. But this is what happens next. David finds out about it, and he's like, Joab, you idiot. And he tells Joab that he hopes for all of eternity, Joab's family will either be sick or hungry. And then David throws a massive funeral for Abner. This guy who had been his enemy had now promised, I'm going to bring Israel over to you. And David says, you know what? It doesn't matter what you did in the past. I'm going to forgive you. And David throws Abner, this massive funeral 
And at the end of the passage, something interesting happens. Verse 31 says this. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier. It's the, the pile they put Abner's body on and then they were going to burn it. And it said, um, they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered as you fell as one falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him again. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to verse 36. It says, all the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner. This is an amazing story because this is David saying, no, I'm going to honor this former enemy of mine. I'm going to show him respect. And all the people love him for it. So, then David complains. Let's finish up the chapter. It says this, Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel today? And today, though I'm anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. Abner and his brothers were the sons of Zeruiah. Excuse me, not Abner. Joab and his brothers were the sons of Zeruiah. And now David says, Joab and his brothers are too strong for me. That sounds like a guy who's whining. I don't know. We'll come back to all that at the end when I try to tie all this stuff together. Chapter 4, the narrative of chapter 4 goes like this. Ishbosheth is asleep, and two guys sneak into his bedroom and stab him in the belly. There's so many belly stabs in this, chap- in this section. I don't know what the deal is, but they stab him in the stomach, and Ishbosheth dies. Then they cut off Ishbosheth's head, bring it back to David, and say, David, ha-ha, your enemy king is dead. And this is what David says, verse 9, chapter 4. David answered Rechab and his brother Beniah, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite. He says this, as sure as the Lord lives, who's delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. David takes the head of his enemy and gives it a proper honorable burial in Abner's tomb, the other place where he had given a proper burial to an enemy. Okay, so what do we do with all this? Again, like I said before, this is not one of those passages where it's, you can tie all the things neatly together and like there's this good emotional, you know, moral point, but there's some stuff that's going on that I think we can understand something really important. First, let's remember all the themes that we've seen so far. 
They were the blanks you filled in earlier. When David becomes king, he seeks God for guidance. He shows a preference for peace. He honors his opponents. He displays vulnerability, but he also exploits women. And on that last front, I find this interesting because like, when I was a kid, I was taught that David, because he was a man after God's own heart, could do no wrong. And so it was entirely justified for David to have all these wives. It was entirely justified for David to go after Michal because she had been his wife first. I remember when I was a kid understanding that David could do no wrong. In fact, I understood that any of the Bible characters could do no wrong. There were the good characters who always did right, and there were the bad characters who always did wrong. As a kid, that's the way it was always portrayed to me. And the problem with that line of thinking is that if you believe that, then you will view modern-day atrocities as if there is a good biblical justification for them. If you get into that mindset where you say everything David does is right, then you can also get into the mindset that says if you're powerful enough to maintain a harem of women, go ahead and maintain a harem of women. If you think everything that David does is always right, that's where you could end up. If you think everything David does is always right, you could end up with this idea that David deserved to have Michal back. He deserved to take Michal back from this other man. And you can have that. And the problem with this passage is that there is no judgment given in this passage about those things. But that doesn't mean the Bible is silent on it. In fact, I'm 100% convinced that David's behavior here can and should be defined as exploitative of women. And the first reason for that is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17, say this. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. This is perfectly important, right? When you get a king, what are you supposed to do? When you finally get a king, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. David, he was one that God chose, right? When you get a king, make sure it's one that God chose. Okay, now what? He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Great! David is an Israelite. So we're doing really well. Let's keep reading. It says, do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not an Israelite. Still doing well. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Weird, isn't it? God specifically said, when you get a king, one of the things I want him to not do is acquire many wives. Okay, loophole time. How many is many? David has six. That's much less than his son Solomon will have. Six, that's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, come on, six. You could, you could spend... 
two months about every year with each one of them. I mean, that's not, that's certainly, that's, it's a timeshare situation, right? This is one of those things where you have to ask the question, how many is many? Well, I'll tell you this. Here's my position on it. Six was already many. But going after Michal was definitely crossing a line. I was reading this commentary and it was bending over backwards to try to defend David and his character. And one of the things the commentary was saying was how justified David was in getting Michal back because Saul had stolen Michal from David and given, given Michal to this other guy. And so David was justified in getting Michal back as if Michal was a dog or a car. Because if it's a car and someone steals the car from you, you can get your car back, right? But you know why I know this is exploitative? Neither David nor any of the other men in the story, except for one guy, cared how McCall felt about the situation. And the only guy who cared about her was the guy wandering behind the caravan, crying in tears that his wife was being taken from him. All the other men in the story don't even care what she thinks. In fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that tells us David shouldn't have done this. Take a look at this one. This is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, okay, so just set this up, David did not become displeased with Michal and send her away, but nonetheless they were divorced, right? Because the king took her from one guy and gave her to another guy. That's a legal divorce. That's kind of how that thing works. And so they're divorced. But if she marries another man, let's go on to the next one, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And it uses the word defiled to refer to the woman. And I want you to know that it's not that God thinks the woman is now dirty. It's that that word defiled means that she has slept with another man. So it goes like this. If you have married a woman and then she marries someone else, then you can't have her back after she has slept with another guy. That's the story. So David... His wife has been taken away from him. She's married another man. We now have two reasons why David shouldn't have taken her back. Not to mention, of course, the most important reason to us today that no one actually asked Michal how she felt about it. And so here's the picture. I want you to see what we have seen today because you will see these same themes play over and over again in the life of David. You will see him be a person of peace, but sometimes that looks like weakness. You will see him be a person of vulnerability, and sometimes that, aim, that, that works in his favor, and sometimes it's just David complaining. You will see David be in submission to God, but you will also see a thread of exploitative behavior in him 
that will make its way through this entire book. And I want you to be on the alert for it because it's our ability to see how God sees these things that will help us understand what to do with them. So let me give you something to kind of tie it all together at the end. First of all, let's take a positive lesson from some of the things we've seen in David's life. Let's take a positive lesson about the fact that when David became king, his first act of business was to ask God for guidance. Let's say this. When you have power, I hope that you're a person who retains submission to God. You see, as a matter of fact, everything that we've seen today can be tied together with some type of answer as long as we ask the question right. And the question is, what do you do with power? How do you handle power? What goes on in your life when you have power? And the first answer is, when you have power, retain submission to God. Number two, you see in David's life that even though Abner and Joab were doing all kinds of things violently to try to gain more power and influence for themselves, David doesn't do it. Now, maybe you could accuse David of being weak. Maybe you could accuse David of going soft. Maybe you could accuse David of all kinds of things. But here's the bottom line point. The bottom line point is that while other people are using their power to gain more power, David doesn't. He never does it himself in this section, and he doesn't endorse it. So I'm going to make an application for us. When you have power, don't use power to increase power. It's one of the major facets of our modern world. People with money use money to make money. People with power use power to get power. Right? That's how our world operates today. People who have something leverage what they have to get more of what they have. And David's not operating by that. And I don't want you or me to either. And, but then here's the third one. The third one is that we definitely see David taking advantage of acquiring many wives, even though God had said specifically, don't do that. We see David taking advantage of his power to get a woman back who doesn't rightfully belong to him and doesn't even consider her needs. And so taking a negative lesson from David, I want to encourage you that when you have power, don't use your power to exploit others. It's a major temptation. Anytime we have power, that means that we have the ability to influence other people or we have the ability to get from other people something that benefits us, right? That's what power means. Power means getting other people to change their behaviors and perhaps changing their other behaviors in a way that benefits us. Godly powerful people won't do that. Godly powerful people won't do that. David has his ups and his downs. Sometimes he's on the hunt after God, and sometimes he's wandering. But you and me, we can still take a lesson, still ask the question, what are we going to do when we have power? And I'll just remind you of this one little verse. We looked at it quickly today. Do you remember when Abner sent the letter to David, what the letter said? The first line of that letter said to David, whose land is this? 
Weird question, right? Now, maybe Abner was saying, whose land is this? Oh, David King, it's really your land. I'm going to bring the land back to you. Maybe Abner was saying something like, you know, David, my land is over here. Your land is over there. But guess what? Since this land is my land, I can bring it to you. But I think there's a bigger way to answer it, whether Abner meant it or not. Whose land is it? It's God's land. God's the one who brought the people here. God's the one who gets to determine whether or not these people stay in this land. So here's the, here's the real idea. Our problem when we become people with power is that we think we're people with power. Our biggest problem when it comes to power is that when we have it, we think we have it. And yet we never do. Every bit of power we have doesn't come from us and isn't ours. Every bit of power we have is actually God's on loan to us for a particular period of time. David, whose land is this? You're not the king of this land. All you are is the person God gave the title king for this period of time. The dirt, the land, the people on it, we all belong to God. You are not the power here. I don't know if Abner meant that. In fact, I don't think Abner did. But that's what the writer of the text, I think, is trying to hint at us. And it's definitely the truth. The reason we abuse our power is that we believe we have power. And yet, we don't. See, godly people always recognize that whatever power they have is still in submission to God. Godly people recognize that whatever power they have is not theirs to gain more power. Godly people recognize that the power they have is not theirs to exploit others. Godly people recognize that God is the true authority, and our job is to be with him. Listen, we're going to have one final song here this morning that is a song that kind of helps us to turn that power back over to God and say, God, I want you to be in charge of my life. I want you to be the champion in my life. I want you to take charge in my life. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.